let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, 1 through 4. You can find it on page 1175. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a faithful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to them, to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Word of the Lord. On Tuesday, um, I met with four middle school students for a professional faith class. Um, We talked about various things, including the idea of a covenant. I asked them um, if they knew what a covenant was, and you could really tell that they went to BCS because one of them confidently said that, oh, we learned that in Mr. Seitzman's class. So I said, well, then what is it? What's a covenant? And the same student, once again, with that same confidence, answered me and said, it's a promise. All right. So I turned to other students and said, what is a covenant? Anything to add? Can you guess what they said to me? They all said, well, what she said. (laughs) They're not wrong, right? When people make a covenant, they promise to abide by their mutual agreement. A covenant is a formalized relationship. And the best example of such a covenant is marriage. Marriage is a formalized relationship between man and a woman, right? Until death do us part. That's the promise in that covenant. It's not casual. It's not informal. Likewise, our covenant with our God, the covenant between God and his people, is not casual. It's not informal, but calls for serious responsibilities and commitment. That's precisely what I told these students on Tuesday. I'm not going to tell you who these students are, but if you had a chance to ask them what a covenant was today, can you guess what they will say to you? They will probably say whatever Pastor Yongkwang says. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. They would confidently tell you that it's a promise or it's a formalized relationship. I say all this because the backdrop of our scripture reading this morning is the covenant between God and his people. In order for us to understand what we read, we have to understand the idea of a covenant. But really, in order for us to understand these four verses, we actually have to go back to Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3 and read the entire thing. But unofficially, I made a covenant with you to keep my sermon short and succinct, so I'm not going to do that. Um, But I just want to point out a few things. In Jeremiah 2 and 3, God makes it clear that his people have violated the covenant. In Jeremiah 2.11, God is in agony, and he says, My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. 
Then in Jeremiah 3, God compares his unfaithful people to an unfaithful wife. He asks, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, then should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many women, many lovers. Would you now return to me? All these are rhetorical questions, and God expects his people to know the answers. According to Deuteronomy 24, a husband cannot return to his wife who is after other lovers. The second question about defiling the land uh, intimates that her unfaithfulness would have wider, almost universal repercussions. That's why the unfaithful wife and her unfaithfulness must be completely cut off. That also means that she cannot return to her husband. So the point is clear. Like an unfaithful wife, God's people have left their only true God for worthless idols and false gods. The covenant is broken, and their unfaithfulness now makes reconciliation impossible. Now that is bad enough. But things get worse for God's people. When we read Jeremiah 2 and 3 carefully, we discover that this unfaithful wife who had left her one true husband for many lovers is now rejected by the same lovers. So in our scripture reading this morning, the people that God is talking to isn't just unfaithful people, but they are people who are also without a place. Deuteronomy makes it unlawful for these unfaithful people to return to God. And there, these people have false gods and false idols, but now they will not take these people back either. They have nowhere to go. They are lost, kind of like me without Google Maps. Completely lost. Some might find this passage relatable because they too feel lost or might find it difficult to be faithful or remain faithful to God. But for others, this faithfulness, unfaithfulness we see and her situation don't really resonate. You might feel like you in particular have been very faithful to God in every way, especially in keeping this covenant. But we have to remember that in Jeremiah, the wife doesn't represent any individual or individuals, it represents a people group. God's chosen collective people group. When we hear the word covenant, we immediately go, oh yeah, God's covenant with me, right? That might be because we live in a very individualistic culture. Maybe not. Wherever the case may be, we have to remember that God first and foremost made a covenant with his people. We just saw something great, right? We saw the baptism of Adelaide. Um, I know how to pronounce her name now, um, by the way. In her baptism, we were reminded of the corporate nature of this covenant, the corporate nature of the covenant relationship that we have with God. The covenant is not just, the covenant that we just saw was not just between God and Adelaide or God and her parents or any other individual. It was God and us, God's people. We were also part of that covenant. 
We promised, that is, we made a covenant to welcome Adelaide into our community. We also made a covenant to pray for her, to encourage her, to love her, and to help nurture her in the faith. We were part of this covenant. It's not about you or me or any other individual. It's about us as God's people. And today, we call that people group the church. The church. And when we consider the church, this is not some local congregation. We're talking about the worldwide church with a capital C. And when we consider how she's doing, we have to admit that the church is lost today. Let's take human sexuality as an example. Although this sermon is not part of it, we've been going through a sermon series on human sexuality. I personally believe that our approach has been theologically and biblically sound, but we have to take we have to note that not every Christian agrees with our approach. On one end of the spectrum, we have people, we have Christians who take more affirming and open, open and affirming approach. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have people who take the more shunning and condemning approach. It might be easy for us to have a personal conviction as an individual, but it's not as easy for different individuals with different perspectives to come together and say that this is the way we are going to go together. When there's a myriad of opinions pulling us from all different directions, we get lost in the middle. And in the last few decades, we have seen denominations get lost in the middle and struggle to find a pathway forward. Just in May, last month, the United Methodist Church the biggest denomination, one of the biggest denominations in the world split over their differences on human sexuality. Our Lutheran brothers and sisters went through a similar thing about 10 years ago. And just as um, Pastor Peter alluded in in the prayer, this week our denomination is having a similar conversation, not about splitting, but how we as a denomination understand human sexuality. And that is just human sexuality. There are other topics. The church today is caught in the middle of divisive or divisive and polarizing conversations, including politics, abortion, gun control, and so much more. Some in this people group have chosen the wrong ways. To borrow Jeremiah's language, some have been unfaithful It might be tempting for us to point fingers at those people, condemn their unfaithfulness, and say that they have left God for the idols of secular ideologies. But their unfaithfulness is our unfaithfulness. Because they're a part of God's church. They're also part of God's people. They're part of God's family. In earthly families, we often disagree. We often don't even get along. But you know the saying? They're still family. Their problems become our problems. Their issues become our issues. In God's family, their unfaithfulness becomes our unfaithfulness. So it's not an individual covenant violation. It's our collective covenant 
violation. When it all is said and done, we as the people of God, the church of God, are just like this unfaithful wife in Jeremiah. And when we read Jeremiah through that lens that the covenant is between God and his people collectively, suddenly Jeremiah's picture of this unfaithful wife hits us differently because we are that unfaithful wife. We have collectively broken the covenant. We are lost, and we have nowhere to go. So I find extreme comfort in our scripture reading, in the fact that after all that this unfaithful wife has done against her husband, God, the faithful husband, still calls her back, still calls her back. Picture the wife standing in the barren wilderness of Judah all by herself because she has nowhere to go. Her last lover just abandoned her and kicked her out of his house. In fact, all her lovers have done the same to her. She has nowhere to go. She doesn't know where she's allowed to go at this point. She's completely lost. Once again, like me without Google Maps. Then she hears the voice calling her. The voice of her faithful husband. Unlike the wife, the husband is faithful and he's been waiting for her. He says in Jeremiah 4.1, If you will return, if you will go find a place where you can lie down and rest, then return to me. Come to me. Find that rest in me. Come back to me. And God's call here is not just a physical relocation. God says, eradicate, you, eradicate your worthless idols and false gods. Do not go astray, but remain with me. Then he says, say as surely as the Lord lives in a truthful, justly, and righteous way. The phrase there, as surely as the Lord lives, is, was a, it was a common saying in Jeremiah's days. It was used in worship, it was used in business, and it was used in other areas of life. So the point here is that this return that God is calling his people to do demands spiritual and ethical return to the God of the covenant. It's calling for repentance. The most amazing part of God's call to repentance here is what God promises to do if the people of God return to him as a faithful wife. Since God's been addressing his people, we sort of expect God to say something like, if you return to me, I'll have mercy on you, forgive you, and remove my wrath away from you. But that's not what God says. God says, I will bless the nations. I will bless the nations. God reminds them of the very purpose of their existence as God's chosen people. According to Genesis 12, God has chosen them and made a covenant with them so that they would become the vehicle of God's blessings to all nations, to all peoples. So this restoration of the covenant between God and his people is the restoration of blessings to all people. But there is one major problem. One huge problem. As we already learned, according to Deuteronomy 24, God cannot return to his people, nor the people to their God. God is forgiving and loving, but he's also holy 
and just. And His holiness and justice cannot allow His unfaithful, sinful people to just come back to this relationship with Him. Justice has to be served. Payment for their sin, unfaithfulness, has to be paid. God wants His people back, of course. But before their unfaithfulness and sin are dealt with, God cannot take them back. And Walter Brueggemann calls this the wounded hope of God. He goes on to say that law in Deuteronomy establishes that the people have no right to return. The same law establishes that God has no obligation to have them back. But the real issue here is that God, as the husband, is hurt and he's filled with humiliated indignation. This issue here precludes reconciliation and restoration. Nonetheless, God is open to both. So the question is, how can these two things be reconciled? The answer, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for the unfaithfulness and sin of the people. In him, justice is served. In him, the wounded hope of God, calling, return to me, come back to me, has become the reality of all of God's people. Jesus has replaced our unfaithfulness with his faithfulness, and the covenant relationship with God has been secured and sealed for us forever. And because his blood has cleansed us completely, we get to have this new beginning And Jeremiah foreshadows that in verses 3 and 4. He instructs God's people to start digging a new ground. Then he instructs them to circumcise themselves, but circumcise their hearts. Paul in Colossians 2 makes the connection between baptism and circumcision. Like baptism in the New Testament, circumcision in Jeremiah's days was the entry point into this covenant relationship with God. So this means what this foreshadowing is pointing to is a brand new beginning with a new life in Jesus Christ. And it is no coincidence that Jesus Christ then has revealed himself as the way, the truth, and the life because only through him we can return to God our husband. Church is lost today. Everyone is promoting a different thing. Everyone is pulling all of us into uh, toward a different direction. The collective people of God don't know which way to go. So if somebody asked you, where should we go as Christians, what would you say? How would you answer that question? I know what my four middle school students would say. They would say, whatever Pastor Yong Kwang says. All jokes aside, we should do what God says in Jeremiah 4. We should return to him. We should return to him. We're caught in the middle of polarizing conversations and issues. We must let go of perspectives, opinions, and worldviews that have controlled us in the past, and we must return to him. And not as individuals, but as the collective people of God, we should return to our God. 
But what about those who are unwilling to come with us? Well, we can abide by the covenant we made during Adelaide's baptism. Our spirituality didn't mature overnight. It just didn't happen like that. God surrounded us with people who were the vehicle of God's blessings in our lives. Our parents faithfully dragged us to church every Sunday. Our Sunday school teachers taught us. Our youth group leaders mentored us. Our pastors preached the gospel to us. And others prayed for us. We made a covenant promise today to welcome, to pray, to encourage, and to help Adelaide uh, nurture or nurture Adelaide in the faith. But that promise that we made is not just exclusive to Adelaide or other members of this church, this BCRC congregation. No. We made that promise to all God's people. When we were baptized and circumcised by Christ, we promised the same commitment to the entire church of God, to all people of God. So if some Christians show their unwillingness to return to God with us, that means we should be the vehicle of God's blessings in their lives. We should pray for them. We should encourage them. We should help nurture them in the faith so that the entire church may return to God as one church so that his people finally might become the vehicles of God's blessings to all people on earth. Return to me, God says to us. Not you or me, but return to me, all of you, together, as the bride return to me, God says. Let's go to God in prayer. Faithful God, We are so grateful for opening our eyes to the bigger picture of the covenant that we have with you. Thank you for reminding us that we should not only come back to you as individuals, but also as your collective people, as your one church. So Holy Spirit, help us to pray for God's universal church. Move us to ask forgiveness when we see the unfaithfulness of fellow Christians. Prompt us to love them and help nurture them in the faith, especially those who have gone astray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is our way back to you. Amen.